This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara region, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all of your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Thirty years after first working on a sheep station, Spencer Robinson finally purchased one of his own. So, in 1976, the family sold their small farm in Victoria and travelled across the country to Mooloo Downs in the Gascoigne region of Western Australia. And the Robinsons are still in the region almost 50 years later. In this episode, I speak with Waddy Robinson, son of Spencer and father of Matilda from episode 66 and Christy from episode 126. Needless to say, Waddy has seen and done a fair bit over the past 50 years, from being a mustering pilot, taking over the family station and purchasing more country, and of course raising a family. Let's not forget the crash of the wool market, the the tuberculosis eradication campaign, a flood which wiped out their homestead, and of course a live export ban, just to name a few. I started our chat by asking Waddy for some family history. Yeah, my father. He he, um, he was a farmer in Victoria, and he sold sold his farm and bought a station over in the Gascoigne called Murloo Downs, and came over came over to, uh, bought bought it in nineteen seventy six, and yeah, sold up the farm and all the farming equipment over in Victoria, and then shifted the whole family over to the Gascoigne, Upper Gascoigne, in nineteen seventy six. But this wasn't his first time in Western Australia, was it? No, no, it was. He actually worked over here on. Milgan Station when he was 19 years old. He's, uh, he was working for a cousin of his who was, uh, uh an overseer on a, on a, on the station called Milgan when it was, uh, when that was a sheep station back in, oh, uh, around about 48 or 49, I think, around there. And, um, yeah, just liked the lifestyle and the, you know, the existence and, uh, always had a plan to sort of, um, he went back to Victoria after and, you know, grew up on there. Worked on their family farm over there, but um, he always had a had a plan to sort of get over to WA and 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 do some of what he'd experienced when he was nineteen. 
Whereabouts is Milgan Station? <laughs> uh, Milgan. Uh, Milgan's uh, sort of out um, on the Megathara sort of district, um, a little bit on the sort of northwest side of um, Megathara. And, um, yeah, it's on the Gascoigne River, right out sort of near the, the start of the Gascoigne River. So he came out as a 19-year-old, spent some time on a sheep station. It took him almost 30 years to get back out to this part of the world. And yeah, get his he, own had, station. He, he had to make his own way a bit first, you know. Like he's uh, he grew up on on the family farm, and and uh, he had another brother. We had two brothers, but one stayed on the farm, and they both worked it together for a while. And until they sort of got to the stage where they were both married, and um, yeah, the farm was getting a bit small for two families. So the other the other his brother stayed there, and my father he went out on his own. And he leased a couple of farms, not at the same time, sort of one after the other, and and eventually sort of uh, purchased a, a farm of his own in central Victoria, uh, near, between Stall and uh, Horsham, and he owned that one. Then he shifted over to another place just north of Bendigo, a place called uh, Charlton, and uh, stayed there for a bit, and uh, and then eventually sort of sold sold that property and. Um, Came over and had a look in WA first, and then when he went back, he had a couple of options, and he ended up purchasing um, a station in the Upper Gascoigne with, with uh, fourteen thousand sheep on it. So this would have been in the mid seventies. This was in mid, yeah, nineteen seventy six. Yeah. So you said he he came back to have a look, and that's a fairly big trip. I love that I'm about to ask. Like, could he have flown over in those days? With was yeah, it? Like, you could affordable? definitely fly commercially. You could fly over and then uh, hire a car and, and uh, drive around, but. I think he just wanted to have it. He was doing a bit of a trip at the same time and having a, he had a bit of a, a bit of a look at a few places. You know, he had a look at a place on the Nullarbor and uh, another place north of Kalgoorlie as well. And, um, he then came up, came up to Carnarvon, went inland and he ended up sort of settling on, on that property there in Upper Gascoigne. And who, so he, by this stage as well, I'm guessing had a, had his wife and children. Did you guys come on the trip with him to look at the properties? No, no, he just came over. Him and a, him and a mate of his came over together, just the two of them travelling. And, um, we didn't even know he'd, he'd bought a property until he got back. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was all a bit different those days. You didn't have the instant communications. You got even the, even the farm and that we were sort of on at the time in Victoria. Like it, and he had a telephone line, but there was five other people on the same line. And, you know, it was one of those party lines. And yeah, it was, it was pretty hard to get, get a go at the phone really. I love that, like a lads on tour, boys trip, boys road trip, and it's not like, oh, we've gone somewhere and, um, you know, bought a carton of beer, we've bought a whole, a whole station. Yeah, we go did that. Go hard or go home. Yeah, I think he had a plan in mind before he even left that he was going to going to buy something, and he'd, he'd been... He'd been sort of investigating those options, so he sort of knew he knew where he was going to. And um, yeah, he almost bought a place in the goldfields first, a place called Earliston. And um, yeah, but for some reason he didn't proceed with that. And um, there he came up into the sort of uh, Gascoigne district. It's certainly I'm trying to think of the words, you know, like a like a real commitment. And he, he that first experience back when he was 19 out in the Mekathara district must have really stuck with him to 30 years later, you know, when you're looking for somewhere to go anywhere in this country and this is where you want to come back. And it, it's like taking a, a not like, you know, you're working towards a goal for a very long time, whereas that doesn't necessarily, um, I suppose in this day and age, you know, there's, a, there's that idea of instant gratification, but he knuckled down and 30 years later, got to have a... Well, he maintained own. a connection over here as well in that time as well because he had the, the cousin 
who was a, was a bloke called Athol Robinson, and um, Athol ended up sort of buying properties of his own. And um, they had that sort of um, occasional sort of connection with each other, you know, through that. And uh, and Athol even offered to assist him into purchasing a property like way back, you know, way back before the 30 years had sort of come around. There was another property on the market and then he offered to assist him into buying that. But um, I think I think there was I was sort of one of six kids and I think there was a bit too hard to sort of relocate at the time. So, yeah, so that didn't happen. But... Um, yeah, anyway, you end up sort of purchasing this property. He reckoned that his 14,000 sheep would be a lot easier to muck around with than sort of driving tractors around in circles and, you know, chasing, chasing sheep and driving tractors. So, yeah, that's what happened. And so he comes home and tells the wife and kids, hey, I've bought a, a place on the other side of the country in the middle of nowhere. Let's, how soon between getting home and packing up to head off? Yeah, that, that was. It took a while for the, the you know the farm to to um, it, it sold relatively quickly. Like it sold sort of within a within a month sort of thing. And then there was a there was a bit of time needed to sort of set up uh, selling all the farm equipment. There was a clearing sale done there. Yeah, all the all the machinery got sold. And um, yeah, and then it, like it, I think over it was probably only about I don't know I can't remember exactly, but probably not that long. I'd be under a couple of months, and it was all sort of done and dusted, and we were sort of on our way. Tell me, I know it's a, a favourite story within your family, the trip over. Tell, can you tell us about the trip over from Victoria to, to the Gascoigne? Yeah, well, we just drove across. Yeah, there was only there was a, had two cars, a Leyland P76 was the sort of family wagon at the time and, and a Holden Ute with a trailer on the back and that was, uh, was full of a few boxes of our belongings and then a couple of dogs. And, uh, yeah, it was just set sail and, uh, there was no staying in motels or anything. We just sort of pull up the side of the road when you, you needed a bit of a break and just sort of all kick back and have a snooze and then go again a few hours later. And, and, uh, from Kalgoorlie, um, up to the property, that was sort of more of a direct, uh, track where we sort of went along there and it was quite hot. It was in the summertime and, uh, every time you saw a tank, you'd pull up there and sort of, uh, everyone had sort of wet themselves down and, yeah, and give the dogs a bit of a break and, yeah, wet them down as well and, yeah, and then go again. So we came across a couple of um, Pakistani blokes that had run out of spare tyres on the road there and, and, um, and I, I remember my father just drove the, drove the ute up on the side of one of their flat tyres and broke the bead for them and they were, they could hardly speak English but uh, you, we knew that they were pretty grateful by the way. They were sort of bowing and holding their hands and clapping and stuff so uh, yeah, made their day. I think they were able to fix up their tyres and get going. Like, imagine just all the adventures. You're in such a remote part of the world, and you come across people from the other side of the world, and you think you wouldn't see many humans out there. But yeah, yeah, they, they, they still dirt roads the whole way. Just about then, from Kalgoorlie all the way to to Murley Downs, it was all all dirt roads all the way. And um, yeah, and like those those been there a couple of days. Apparently, these blokes, you know. And um, they just run out of spare tyres. They did. They did have two or three spare tyres, but they just used them all. And and um, they had gear to fix them, but um, they just couldn't break the beads. But um, anyway, once the old man just put the tyre down on flat on the ground, he just drove the the wheel of the ute sort up on the edge of the tyre and broke the bead for them. And, and then they were right to to fix them. And yeah, no, we left them to it then. And when you say you were. Um Using the water out of the tanks to cool yourself down. So were you guys like climbing up the tanks? Were these open top tanks? Yeah, they're old style tanks with no tops on them. Yeah, just yeah, 
yeah, just you know, sort of just you know, throw you throw some bloody towels and stuff in there and get them soaking wet and then bring them back out and run them, you know, dribble them all over yourself and wet yourself down as best you can. And yeah, um, yeah, the youngest of the, you know, I'm the oldest and I was 16 at the time, but the, uh, the youngest, you know, they're like, I don't know, six or seven or something at the time. And yeah, you could sort of grab them and dunk them and <laughs> you know, lift them back out again. And so, uh, yeah, it's kept everyone alive anyway. It's lucky that it was these open, you know, uh, water tanks that had no uh, lids on them or roofs um, because a lot of them these days do. And I suppose, though, if you came across a tank that had a like a roof on it and you couldn't get into the water, I'm sure it would be connected to a trough or a, or a dam or something not too far away and you'd just go on. Yeah, the trough, it was always, there was troughs there and the, the windmills that had Tanks on them, but uh, and there were some others there on that didn't didn't have tanks or troughs. They just like um, pumping into a little bit of a like, duck pond sort of a thing, and they weren't so wonderful for the for the people. But the dogs didn't mind it. <laughs> now your mother has packed up her life and her six children to follow her husband, which is an incredible sign of good faith. Flat across the country to a part of the world she's never been to. And I can only imagine that driving through, you know, particularly across South Australia and then the Nullarbor, and it's just going to get more and more remote and more and more kind of desert-like, nothing like Victoria. What are your memories of her on that trip and how did she, you know, handle seeing the, you know, the changes in country? Yeah, I think she can handle it, no worries. She was used to, like, it was up in uh, central Victoria, like, even though – a lot of people think Victoria's all sort of lush and green all the time. It's not, not all of Victoria's like that, you know, in the, in the sort of wheat and sheep sort of country where father had the farm. That's, um, that, that could be pretty, um, hot and dry at times, you know, like quite often it'd get up to, you know, up to 40 odd. And so, yeah, it wasn't such a real big culture shock, you know, the, the, the distances and the, you know, the remoteness of it's, you know, a bit of a culture shock, but temperature wise and that, that's, um, wasn't, wasn't a real big, wasn't a real big adjustment really, but, um, no, but she she liked it. She liked it, you know. Um, she was a, she's a busy sort of a girl, and um, you know, patching up the homestead and stuff like that. There was there was always plenty to do. It was an older style sort of um, building, and there was always, there's always a lot of maintenance, you know, patching and painting and cleaning and fixing things. And yeah, she she's always sort of been quite, you know, busy at doing those sort of jobs. And so, what was the name of the station that your parents had purchased? Uh, Mooloo Downs. Mooloo Downs, yeah. and whereabouts is that? Uh, it's about one hundred and twenty kilometres, sort of east northeast of Gascoigne Junction. Okay, and Gascoigne Junction is what do you reckon? It's like a hundred k's east of Carnarvon, sort of. Uh, Gascoigne Junction is one hundred and sixty k's east of Carnarvon. Oh wow, I was way off then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me about the arriving at Mooloo Downs. Yeah, well, that, we eventually got there. It was after about a, oh, I can't remember, it was the third or fourth day of sort of travelling. But, um, yeah, we got there and um, it was late at night. Oh, well, no, actually, it wasn't that late. It was sort of, but it was dark. It was probably about um, eight o'clock at night, maybe may a little bit later, not sure. And, and the, the bloke who, who owned the place at the time, um, that was Ross Lightfoot and uh, his, his wife Sue and they, they were just packing up to uh, to leave. They were leaving the next morning, and uh, they and which they did. They left really early in the morning, about four o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, they had all beds made up on the lawn. It was like, it's like a hospital sort of bloody bed line up there on the lawn. And 
So we all crashed pretty well that night. It was good sleeping outside and, uh, yeah, just woke up in the morning at first light. Um, you're there. You know, and Ross, Ross and Sue had gone and, uh, yeah, and we were, we were, we were just sort of there to, um, you know, go, go and feel our, find our way around. I was about to say that's about the shortest handover I've ever heard of in my life, but I don't even know if you could call that a handover then. <laughs> I mean, at least they were there when you arrived for a few hours, but. Yeah, no, my father spent a bit of time with Ross in, in the office and they, they went through a fair few things and I, you know, there was a bit of, bit of, you know, pointing at maps and drawing lines and things and, you know, a few little notes were sort of left there on the, on the map and the office table and, but, uh, yeah, there was a, there was a, there was a bit of explaining sort of stuff went on and it's, um, yeah, and, and there was a fellow came with the place. I called, uh, Bruce, Brucey Bung and, uh, Bruce came with the place. He was part of the plant and equipment list and, <laughs> and uh, he he was there, so we had someone there who was able to show us around, you know. And he was he just jump on a motorway and go and check sort of waters and stuff and report back to you. And yeah, eventually we started going around with Bruce, and so yeah, that that was that was pretty handy. Yeah, oh, yeah. One one of the mill runs that Bruce came back, he was a really good uh, fellow, this bloke. He but he wasn't really um, highly educated, but but a hell of a nice fellow. But he's um, came back one day. Uh, from doing one of the, the water runs and he said that told the old man about this certain windmill that was broken down and there was no water there and yeah my father asked him you know how how many sheep are there bruce and he said oh 40 or 200 maybe 60 and uh, well he didn't really know he knew how to say some uh, figures but he didn't really know how to sort of actually judge numbers and, and uh but anyway we went out and fixed the windmill and he showed us where it was and off we went and fixed it how do you remember how many sheep were there? Which of those numbers was closest well, I to? I think it was more closer to the 200 mark, maybe a bit better. <laughs> and just to clarify, when you say he came with the plant equipment list, is that, that's just your way of saying he stayed employed during the handover. He wasn't, and just in case somebody hears that and he's like, were they involved in slavery? <laughs> <laughs> he was there of his own volition and gainfully employed. Yeah, oh, definitely was. Yeah. No, he'd been, he'd been working um, on the station for uh, many years before that. And, um, yeah, and he, and he stayed there with us for, oh, I think two or three years at least after that too. So. And it was, um, he, did he have a family there with him? Yeah. He, he had a, a, a wife and um, one child. So you get there and, Within, you know, daylight comes and the old owners are, have good luck. See you later. Off they go down the road and you're just kind of left with, uh, the station to explore and to, to figure it all out or, and your father, obviously, your, your whole family. It must have been a, um, a learning curve, I suppose, but, but really you had no other options. It was sink or swim at that stage. Yeah. That's, that's basically it. You just had to sort of, um, yeah, just go with the flow, really. Like, my father knew how to fix windmills and stuff. I'd never ever been involved in fixing windmills, but, and there was no solar pumps in those days. It was, it was all windmills and it was 40, 40 odd windmills on the place. And, um, yeah, and they, they regularly require, you know, work to be done on them. And, and, uh, yeah, so we, it was a real learning curve. We had to sort of, uh, you know, yeah, just sort of go with the flow, really. Just keep checking windmills. And as you find one broken down, just fix it and, yeah, and that was that was all you could do in the early days, just get, um just regular water runs and uh, keep keep fixing things. And yeah, it's, we sort of learned how to we learned how to fix windmills pretty quickly. <laughs> and I understand that it was only in your second week at Mooley Downs that you had well that the property had its well that your family had your first run in with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Yeah, that's what happened. The uh, we were out fixing a windmill one day, and and my mother had, had gone to town and. 
um, Bruce's wife, her name is Nolene, she she was sort of home at the at the homestead alone and uh, didn't like that, so she so she started walking her with and a baby on under her arms and a and a jug of water and a couple of dogs walked tried to walk over to the next door station which was over at Weed Arrow which is it's about oh, about ten or twelve mile across and um, yeah, the mail the mailman come along on the first day he'd ever been on time for weeks and um, he actually come along that day and um, yeah they were only about halfway across and it was hot time of the year and. The, uh, the baby, I saw this baby on a blanket under a tree and he stopped and couldn't work out what was going on. Anyway, picked the child up and put it in the truck and he went a bit further and, and there was mum. She was the same. She was comatose under a tree. So he picked her up as well and put her in the truck. And Anyway, he took her into the into the homestead at Weed Arrow and um, then they didn't have a RFDS strip there so they, they brought him back over to Merlot Downs and we'd come back from fixing a, a wrecked windmill and... Um, yeah, we got got to the airstrip there at the homestead, and there's a flying doctor plane sitting there. We with yeah, we had Bruce with us, and we just you know got the story what had gone on there, and um, yeah, while while the nurses and that were sort of reviving mum and the child, you know, they had them in in bathtubs full of water and cold water, as pissed to cold water as you could get in those days with kerosene fridges, and uh, trying to revive everyone, which they did eventually. Um, yeah, they were unconscious when they were found, but they eventually sort of uh, revived them. Anyway, me and Bruce went sort of looking for the dogs, but, and we found the dogs, but um, they both both had died. They'd been a bit a bit too long without a drink. It's it's wild to think that all this um, drama and commotion and and a, a near death experience of both Nolene and Obub came about from not wanting to be alone at the homestead. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there was never an explanation given, and they, life just carried on as normal after that. And they all stayed there. Like the child got bigger and bigger, and yeah, and yeah, and you know, mum got bigger and bigger as well. And yeah, life just carried on. It was like as if nothing happened, really. So, did your dad? Sorry, I haven't even asked yet. What was your dad's name? Noel. Noel. Yeah, oh, yeah, and yeah. and Nolene. Yeah. So your dad's Noel and. Bruce, the employee, his wife's name is Nolene. So, mm. did Noel ever give Nolene a bit of a, a turn up to be like, "Don't go and do that again," you know, anything like that? Because I mean, the- I don't think he did directly. I don't think he did directly, but he, he might have said something to Bruce, you know, that he don't, you know, tell her not to do that again. But no, not not as far as I know, not directly anyway. But I think she would have probably, you know, hopefully she'd sort of learn her own lesson over that one. She, yeah. You know, if that mail truck hadn't come along on that day and that was the first time he'd actually been, you know, on time, you know, running the schedule for, for many weeks, he had a lot of breakdowns in the previous few weeks and tyre trouble, et cetera. And he, that was the first time that he actually had a trouble-free run and he was on time. Uh, if he had not have been on time, um, they both would have perished. It's uh, obviously Nolene's not here to to share her side of the story, but I can only imagine that if she wasn't, she didn't want to be alone. It wasn't a I'm bored. I want to go chat to someone. I'm sure it maybe it was more of a I don't, I don't know. I'm not comfortable mm. being alone. I don't feel safe. I assume it would be something more like that to make her get up and walk that distance in the heat with her child. And um, but yeah, well, I don't think just, we'll ever know. I don't really think we'll ever know the reason why. But there there was a a lot of. Um, People over at Weed Arrow that she would have, uh, you know, assimilated with. So she was maybe she's just wanting to go across to them. Yeah, no, I don't know. Oh, no, just wrong time of day, wrong mm. time of year. That's very lucky. So, 
did every station, well, to your knowledge, back then, so the, uh, the mailman would have had to call the flying doctor on a V, uh, VF, no, HF, HF radio? Yeah. Yeah, no, the old, the old, yeah, the old HF radio, single sideband radio. Yeah, yeah, there was an emergency button. You know, you, you had no, oh. you had no phone. There's no phone. Yeah, that's no, what so. I was thinking. So yeah, you could call the flying doctor service, which they used to have a base in Carnarvon, and there was a, an emergency button there you could press, and you would get a, um, a response immediately from the, the operator in the base, and um, you could tell them what the problem was, and he that he then would organise that. And the planes back then, the, the Royal Flying Doctor planes, they were, you know, every major town like Carnarvon, Meekert, Thara, Headland, all that, they all had their own aircrafts you know, located sort of, well, there's one in Carnarvon, and uh, they were able to sort of be out there like straight away virtually. It's, wow. Mm, mm. Um, I had no idea that they were, so I guess over time they must have just um, kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like just kind of, they're more in major centers now and, you know, less spaces, but probably, mm. yeah, just, uh, what did you guys have a V, uh, a H, sorry, let me get all my letters mixed up. A HF radio in Victoria. Like, had you guys used one before? No. Or did you no. know how to use one? Oh, uh, yeah. No, you learned how to use it pretty quick because that was your only sort of communication. Like, and you did a, did a roll call every morning. Just to make sure it was working and, and you could sort of use that service like to, uh, pass messages on to the, the base operator and he would sort of make little, uh, make phone calls on your behalf and put in orders and things like that for the mail truck. And yeah, so, you know, that was your only means. The, the only other option you had was to drive the nearest phone from Merlo Downs was down at Dairy Creek, which was, you know, 30 odd kilometers down the road and you could, but that was that wasn't easy to get used on that phone either because that was a party line and there was other people sort of you know wanting to use it and it was tight, it was hard it wasn't that easy to to get a go at it so in most cases you had to drive down to Gascoigne Junction to make a phone call and uh, then you just had a normal phone there. So what else do you remember about the early years being at Mulu Downs? Uh, well, initially it was was dry for a couple of years. Yeah, it was, that doesn't sound like the gas going <laughs> at all. <laughs> it was it was a couple of years of sort of pretty gruesome sort of dryness, but um, yeah, and then it sort of changed around. It sort of came came good, and um, yeah, no, the, the, it's a terrific bit of country. Like it's as good as anywhere when it rains, but um, it's it can forget to to rain in the gas going every now and then. Yeah, well, it's, it's um, well, being a family sort of operation. You know, you didn't. You had sort of Bruce there as long as he stayed there, you know, for that two or three years after, and then he ended up floating off. But um, by then you sort of didn't really – you could get by without him anyway, so we boxed on on our own sort of thing. But, yeah, mustering was always done with uh, motorbikes, and um, initially we used to hire aircraft from nearby stations and to, um, yeah, just, you know, find the sheep and push the sheep along. And, yeah, that's how it sort of all went. And, uh, yeah, just bring the – get the sheep in there was no cattle on that property at that time so i've never spoken to anyone well i suppose in real life or on this podcast about mustering sheep with aircraft what is the difference to so if, if you were to go out and muster sheep are they uh and so i said you, you said there were 40 water points on on the property do they kind of are you finding them around water or do they spread out do they kind of hang together in a, in a bigger mob or flock um, what was it like trying to muster the sheep? <coughs> well, the, the mustering was always done in the cooler months, and uh, they are spread out then. The, they're only uh, close around the waters in the summertime, and you don't, we never used to do any mustering and shearing in that time of the year. But yeah, the, the, all the mustering was done in the cooler months, and uh, normally 
normally then it was sort of like August, September. And, uh, yeah, just use the aircraft and, um, yeah, you have the bikes all spread out and they keep me in a sort of coordinated sort of line through the paddock. The sheep were spread out over 400,000 acres and um, that was, you know, fenced up into probably 20, 20 sort of paddocks. And, um, yeah, you just do it sort of paddock by paddock and uh, push them closer and closer in towards the shed and sort of have about half the property mustered when the shearing started and while I was shearing them, you'd muster the other half of the property and, and bring them in a bit closer. Did you have communication with the pilot from the ground? Like yeah, yeah. Now we all had the old-fashioned walkie-talkies, you know, great big things that bloody hang off your neck and break your neck. But, um, yeah, like compared to the, the, the walkie-talkies now, the little two-way UHFs we use now, like those – these things nowadays are only about like a fifth of the size of what the old ones were. Really? So the other ones are quite... They're like about two cans of beer together, one on top of the other. That was about the size of them. That's wild and heavy as well. Yeah, pretty heavy. And, uh, you know, a lot of people wear these <laughs> uh, like pouches or like almost like little bras to put their uh, two ways in these days. Did you have those back then? No. Nah, well, yeah, some some people did and some people had sort of like uh, little sort of uh, holder things on the handlebars of the motorbike and, um, yeah, but not not really as good as those little leather pouches that you're talking about now which can easily fit those small radios in and, and these new small radios are just so incredible how light and, and how good they perform and how long the batteries last in them compared to those you know, old radios that oh, batteries would be going flat. You'd have a pocket full of batteries as well and and uh, then be lucky to still see the day out by the time you change the battery two or three times and, yeah, they come a long way. Holy hat box. Now, you're, you were a young fellow when, well, 16 when you guys came to Mooley Downs. How did the social scene out here in the middle of nowhere compare to to being back in Victoria? It's a, a pretty uh, special time for you, being a young fella. And yeah, yeah, no, it was it was good actually. I had a good introduction. You know that only within a couple of weeks of arriving here, the, the next door neighbours said, "Oh, there's a big party on. We're having a big bloody boundary party." You know, and that was between the Dairy Creek Homestead and the um, Bigamire Homestead. There was a creek there called the Congo Creek, and the, uh, they'd organised to sort of have a big social uh, weekend there, and there was just uh, plenty of plenty of kegs of beer and um, plenty of barbecues and plenty of music and plenty of people, and uh, just uh, just went on. Started on Friday night and uh, it all dissolved by about Sunday afternoon. But yeah, you met a few of the locals, and yeah, that was that was a good introduction to all the all the locals around. So yeah, there's you know one one character there that's just. One incident that sticks in my mind clearly from that particular social event was um, the first time I met Sid, and um, Sid's well known through the district. And anyway, uh, rather than keep getting a glass of beer out of the keg all the time, he went up to the keg with his water bag and, and filled the filled up his water bag with beer out of the keg, and then went and sat back down again and just you know kept sipping away on the water bag, <laughs> and uh, that that saved a bit of sort of you know getting up and down out of your chair. Do you think anybody saw him? Just, just with his water bag, and thought he might be drinking water. <laughs> no, they, no, they could tell by his behaviour that he was, <laughs> he was not drinking water. <laughs> now it's the same family still at Vigimire, uh, like it's the same family to, to this day from back when you were at the party in the seventies. 
it, I'm guessing is it probably a different family at, at Dairy Creek? Oh, yeah. No, there's it's, definitely. That's been sold in. Yeah, no, that's changed hands. Yeah, the, the Stedman family that were at Dairy Creek at the time, they, uh, they've moved on and Ainsley and Tricia live down in Perth now. And, uh, yeah, there's been a, a couple of different, um, households there since. I wonder if the Congo Creek party still goes exists. And if not, I would like to formally ask both families if they would consider getting it, getting it going again. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. There's not as many people around now as what there was back then. And there was one other thing that happened at that Congo Creek party. The, um, uh, one of the gas bottles for the kegs that actually didn't have enough gas to sort of, um, you know, finish pushing the, the last keg of beer out. And Ainsley, um, he went back up to, back to Dairy Creek, which was the closest homestead, and he got an oxy bottle and he, oh. and he made a connection up for the oxy bottle and took the oxy bottle down there and that got it, that got us all through the, you know, the rest of the remaining beer. So that, uh, he's, he's ingenious. I was just about to say, like, the things, bush mechanics, the things people can mm. come up with if something's going to stand between them and, <laughs> well, getting the job done or now I've learned between them and getting the rest of the beer out of the keg. Yeah. That is very clever. What, I suppose, so you, you've been here in the Gascoigne region for over 40 years or, you know, I don't know, maybe close to 50. Won't give away your age. But you, so you, as you just said, the, the amount of people has really changed. When did you start to notice? Was it like an overnight thing that one year at a party you had a hundred people there or one year at say, you know, land or races or one of the district events, there's a big mob of people there and the next year, you know, it's half or was it just kind of like you started missing two or three people each year until it whittled down? There's a little bit of a combination of a few factors, I suppose. It's been a change in the, the Gascoigne, like it, it was, you know, historically a sort of all, all sheep sort of area, but, and, it, and, and just a few properties had a few cattle, but the, um, that's totally changed now where it's gone the other way. It's all, it's all cattle properties now and there's only a few places that sort of more on the coastal strip that have got a South Carnarvon that have got, got sheep still. But, um, that, that's one reason. And there's, there's not as many, it, the sheep properties always seem to have did used to have more staff on each property uh, because there was a there was a lot more work involved with the sheep. You know, you got to get them get them in for shearing, and then you got to remuster them again later in the year or early earlier before shearing, whenever your shearing time is, and do the lamb marking muster. And then there was a bit of a straggler shearing sort of muster. Yeah, you were sort of pretty busy. You know, with each property is pretty busy with their own sheep flock. So um, yeah, and. And likewise with the flying side of things, you know, there was a, a there was a lot of hours on, on each property, you know, for handling the sheep operation, like you do anywhere. Yeah, I started I'd started flying sort of in seventy nine when I got my license, and um, started doing went straight into sort of mustering and started flying. It was you know initially you were sort of doing um, you know anywhere between sort of seven hundred and nine hundred hours a year, and uh, but but now with the cattle, you know, you're probably back to sort of less than half of that. Each year, so you you have been. I mean, you still fly today on on the station we're on. So you've been mustering a, a mustering pilot for over forty years. What made you want to do that? Was it because it was a better option to be in the sky with the sheep than being on the ground behind them on a bike? Or uh, yeah, there was there's a, there a few reasons, but yeah, you know, my father was always keen on me, sort of you know doing it. He. He hated flying himself, but he was, he was keen on me sort of doing it. He actually bought me all the student training sort of books and stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, so that he, I knew he was pretty keen, but, um, 
and but he he actually hated flying himself. Like if he ever he was in the plane, like you know, the minute you turned and banked, he'd he'd sort of he'd go and crook at you, sort of like you know, straighten the straighten the bastard up, straighten the bastard up. What are you doing? You know, what are you doing, buddy? So yeah, he, he just hated it, you know. But but anyway, yeah, yeah, that's all. That all sort of happened. You know, started sort of straight into it, and um, yeah, that was fixed wing license in seventy nine, and did rotary wing in ninety one. What is a rotary wing? That's helicopter. Oh, oh my gosh. I, in like the four years, I've worked for a helicopter company four years ago. In all, I've heard the term fixed wing, like in the last decade. I've never heard that. I just used to call it a chopper license or a helicopter license. I didn't know that you'd call it a rotary wing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the uh, rotary wing license in 91. Yeah. And we, we actually purchased a helicopter at, you know, we, we bought the helicopter first and then learned to fly in it. Me and my then brother-in-law, Eric. And, um, yeah, we flew a plane over to Bankstown, traded it in on a helicopter, stayed there and learned to fly in it and then, um, brought it back to WA. So what are your standout memories of, of, cause you spent a few years as like a contract pilot, mustering pilot. Uh, where did it take you, and and what do you remember of those days? Oh, that was all good, you know. You, you you just sort of like you had a good look around, you know. Most of the properties, you know, you you know you you, you get to sort of see the properties, you know, good when you do a sort of you know, the flying side of it over the properties, and yeah, you get to have a good look around and um, see some good country and see some good operations, and yeah, well, I really enjoyed it actually, but. Um, it gets a bit – once we ended up sort of buying another property that um, we ended up sort of going to live on ourselves, um, it was a bit hard to sort of keep doing that. He used to do a little bit sort of next-door neighbour sort of stuff, but, um, yeah, as far as going far and wide again, it was, it was a, bit, a bit too hard. So, yeah, that sort of phased out, that side of it, but uh, had enough to, enough flying to do on your own operation, plus, you know, just doing the odd little bit for next-door neighbours. I have been forewarned by your four children and your wife that you – are very modest when it comes to your time as a pilot uh, when you speak about it, which I guess, I mean, uh, many people might maybe modest, but if you had to guess, like do a rough guess, how many hours do you think you've done in the last 40 years? Oh, yeah, I don't know exactly how many. I, I know I've got um, a bit over 19,000 hours logged, but um, it's a bit hard to actually do sort of accurate recording because sometimes you you might get yourself into trouble by putting down too many hours. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that one. <laughs> Is that yeah, we will leave it at that. So is that is that a chopper or is that fixing or no, that's together? Com- that's combined. Yeah. Wow, that mm. is a lot of hours. You spent a lot of time in the sky. Yeah, well back back when we were at uh Unithera Mount Phillip, um the, when we first bought Mount uh we bought uh Unithera in ninety in uh, nineteen ninety and um the place had just been put into quarantine for a TB. So uh, all the cattle had to be um had to be, de- you know, the property had to be destocked of cattle, and um, so the four thousand cattle that were on the place at the time, they all had to be trucked off, and then you weren't allowed to to restock with um, supposedly de- disease-free cattle, and until you passed um, two cattle-free inspections, which was that, that was pretty hard. That that took us about another two years to um, to pass that um, double inspection of no no cattle sighted. So. Um, yeah, you had to each time they were sighted, you had to uh, do something about it, you know, get hold of them. But then you only—it's very hard to get every single animal like they just come out of the woodwork. And yeah, it took us ages to sort of uh, to pass that. And then it wasn't until '93 
that um, we were able then to um, to restock the property and um, and it was good seasons too. There was you know ninety three. There was a lot of good rain, early rain in ninety three. We had eight inches in March and and uh, the countryside had um, jumped out of its skin and it was you know needed cattle. So we ended up sort of buying cattle from um, Queensland. We bought um, oh, a few different lots. You're eligible for once you went through the TB program. You're eligible for um, transport subsidy, so um, which would pay like seventy five percent of the uh, cost of transporting the cattle. So it didn't worry us too much that we were going to Queensland and buying cattle because we had most of the freight sort of covered. So we went over there and um, yeah, we bought different lots. There was, was four hundred and eighty come from Julia Creek, and there's two hundred and thirty came from Charters Towers, so one hundred and seventy odd from Mount Isa. Uh, a few other different lots, and uh, they all, they're all Brahmin cattle, and um, yeah, so a mixture of reds and reds and grey cows and some uh, red heifers, and uh, yeah, we just bought some grey bulls, and yeah, we've been just running with grey Brahmins ever since. You know, just the herds converted over now to a pretty much a, a full grey Brahmin herd. I do want to speak to you about. Uh, the cattle that you brought into the Gascoigne, but I'm just going to take a very quick detour and ask you, that delightful bird that's making a sound right now, is that the bird? That's what they call a screeching owl. Yes. I just would love to say, I will close the door in a moment, but I just think it's hilarious because I'm only- that, I think this one actually that's going now is actually just a white cocky, that one. Oh, okay. Because that I- screeching owl does live here and it does- uh, Makes well, a lot of noise around this house. Well, that's what I wanted because I know that just outside, like the house is built right on the river and there is a, an owl in there that you really do not like and your wife loves <laughs> and you have maybe made some, I mean you or someone, you, have made attempts to uh, just send it to a better place. And I just would think, I was just thinking while we were talking then and everyone listening will be able to like, this is definitely being captured on the audio. I just thought that would be hilarious if, like, your arch nemesis <laughs> appears on your podcast. Like, <laughs> that is too good. Okay, we'll see if that uh, quietens down the bird. You you were just you had just gotten to the part about bringing uh, re- restocking. Uh, so by then you you'd, uh, well we've actually skipped forward a few years, and uh, well not that we need to go in order, but uh, your so you had Mulu. Downs, and then you've also bought uh, had Mount Phillip, and did you have Yenathara as well? Then, yeah, yeah, Mount Phillip was purchased in first um, of July '87, <coughs> and um, yeah, later Yenathara uh, was purchased in um, two, uh, uh, yeah, 1990. Yeah. Okay, so and so, did Yenathara have cattle as well that needed to be destocked through the tuberculosis program? That was that was the Yenathara cattle that had to be destocked. Oh, okay, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so through the tuberculosis eradication campaign, which uh, if anybody wants to hear more about that, our episode with da- Dr. Dave Merrill from the Kimberley, he spoke extensively about that because he was very involved in the testing uh, part of that in the Kimberley. So go find that episode. But you, when it came time to restock. Uh, you brought cattle in from Queensland, and I hear that you were like the first person to bring Brahmins to the Gascoigne region. I don't think it's really first time, first person. Um, might have might have been the first time sort of brought females in, maybe. But um, um, the, there was there was Brahmin cattle in the Gascoigne before that. Mainly, those Brahmin bulls have been introduced, and there was definitely 
There was definitely young Brahmin cross cattle sort of appearing in the Gascoigne then, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. I'm, I don't know if they were the first or, or not, but yeah, they may have been the sort of first sort of larger consignments, but yeah, but anyway, there's, there's plenty of them around through the Gascoigne now. So what is the significance of bringing over females versus males? Oh, uh, well, just, yeah, well, you need to get the females, just, you know, get your breeder, breeder herd sort of there on the, on the property and, yeah, and sort of build up from there. But, um, and like you just, they just weren't available sort of locally. Yeah, but you, you could get a few. You would be able to buy a few sort of smaller lots, maybe. But, you know, we, we destocked quite a large number. There was over 4,000 had been destocked and you're allowed to, um, I think probably about 60% of that amount were females and you're allowed to restock up to that same sort of number. And, and we utilized that sort of right to the very, you know, exact number. And, um, yeah, no, it was just good. It was just good to, um, you know, Queensland genetics are uh, really good. So, um, yeah, it was good to sort of get some really high quality females there. I can, I can just imagine every Queenslander listening to this right now. Their chest, their chest is just going to have puffed up just, just a few inches hearing that. Um, what cattle did you have before you bought the Brahmins over? Well, the cattle, the cattle that we had at Mount Phillip and, and what we sort of, um, came with Inatara when we bought it, they were, they were like a shorthorn based herd, breeder herd, but with Brahmin bulls sort of, you know, over them and all, all the young cattle coming through, like the calves and weaners, they were sort of Brahmin cross. But, um, yeah, we weren't able to do a testing program on that herd. They, they all had to be destocked. Um, the, the facilities weren't, weren't there to actually carry out a testing sort of regime. So, so that, when, that wasn't an option for us. When you say destocked, that's essentially sent to slaughter though? They all like, had to go. They all had to go like that. Yeah. And everyone that went, they had to have it be painted with yellow paint down their back. So that, I don't know, supposedly in case the truck tipped over and they were running loose, they could be identified <laughs> from the air and, and blasted. But yeah, none of that happened. But, um, yeah, no, they they all had to go. Yes, and had you had you had the Mount Phillip for long when that happened? Yeah, we four years, uh, three 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 and a half years. Yeah, but in yeah. the scheme of things, I'm just thinking, say, if somebody had had a property for twenty, thirty years, and they'd been really, you know, every decision you make with what cow you're allowed to breed and what bull you buy in. Uh, you know, that's all working towards the genetic line that you want. So some people would have lost decades of, of their decision making when they had to destock or have animals, you know. Nobody else did though. It was only us because, um, the, the place, the unit there was actually owned by a, a company called the WA Cattle Company. And those, the cattle that are mostly on the unit there at the time, a lot of the, uh, the, well, there was a lot of young steers there and they'd come down from places further north up near sort of Willell and, um, uh, gee, uh, Leopold and a couple other places up there that the, the WA Cattle Company had. And, um, they, um, there were the, the place got put into TB just on one reactor and, and there was, there was no other reactors actually found oh. in all the cattle that went. That has got to hurt that. So, mm. so for people listening that may not have listened to Dave's episode or be familiar with how this worked. So they would test cattle to see if they had TB. Uh, and so you're saying one animal showed up that had it, but the rest of them, when they tested them after slaughter, none mm. of them had it. So essentially you've, you've, but in saying that, and so, so when I'm saying about people that had lost decades of decision making, I mean, this was, this was carried out in Queensland, the Northern Territory, all over, you know, mm. so you, you never had a choice. You just had to do it. Um, like you, you, there was no sort of, you know, we don't want to do it sort of thing. You just, you just had to comply. But if, I suppose you, it seems that you've made the best of a bad situation with how you restocked because 
So you, you had a shorthorn bay, so that's a British ba- breed um, of of cattle, and you were putting Brahmin bulls in, you know, to influence, to try and change the, the genetic makeup of your cows and what breed they were. But when given the opportunity to essentially, I mean, some people even on, say, today are still, there's still a year old shorthorn running around in the territory in the Kimberley and people are trying to breed that out of their herd. And even though this wasn't under the greatest circumstances, you effectively kind of got to do that overnight in a way and bring in your, your nice Brahmin cattle straight from Queensland. And mm. so, so you, you certainly found the silver lining or, or made the best of a, of a, of a bad situation. Yeah. No, we didn't really have a choice. You know, we had to, we had to do it and there, there wouldn't have been a way to restock uh, with, uh, not that we wanted to anyway, we would have preferred to sort of go down the Brahmin sort of road, but uh, we, we just like the Brahmin simply because they're just tough animals and uh, they need to be, they need to be as tough as you can get in the Gascoigne. It, you know, it, it can forget to rain in this neck of the woods and yeah, the Brahmins seem to sort of carry through sort of, you know, quite nicely. Where, how do you decide um, to buy cattle in those days? And and so you said they come from Queensland. Did you get to have a bit of a boys road trip to go and look at some cattle like your dad did when he looked at stations? No, we, we didn't. We didn't do any of that. But you, you were able to sort of like see videos and, and photographs of, of the cattle and, and uh one of the lots of cattle of the 480 uh, red Brahmin heifers that came from Julia Creek from the AA company, they um, they were on a an, an auctions thing like the auctions plus thing now. Like, but this was wasn't called auctions plus back in those days. It was was called bloody calm, I think, like computer aided livestock bloody marketing or something. And and uh, you, you you there was a little video of the of the pens there, and you just got to you know you could just bid you could just bid on them you know like on the computer. And we did that from an office in Carnarvon, you know, the West Farmers office in Carnarvon when they had one there. And, uh, yeah, we, we purchased that lot of 480 red Brahmin heifers from Julia Creek. Um, I think the name of the station was Gregory Downs actually. And, um, yeah, we, we purchased them for $182 a head. And, uh, they, there was three triple road trains left Geraldton went over to pick them up and bring them back. And, uh, you know, it was, no drama at all, and it got right back here to the Gascoigne Junction Road, which is a dirt road going out to Unitherra, and um, it'd been rain and the road was closed, so they couldn't come couldn't come out on the road. So they had to be unloaded. There was a set of cattle yards in Carnarvon alongside the abattoirs, and um, it was empty of stock at the time. So they, yeah, a friend in Carnarvon, he um, Jim Court guided them out there and um, put them in the yard and uh, looked after them, gave them, you know, fed them each day for a few days and until um, the roads opened up and they got reloaded and, and then out they came. What year was this then again? It's 93. So early 90s, you're buying cattle online via computer. I'm just trying to think 1993. This is when computers would have been, and for anyone younger than me listening like just, well, I, just I, google it like i'm not even sure if it was actually a computer it might have been just a, like a television sort of link up somehow but there was a there was a lot of like um, a video sort of clip thing on a on a tv screen anyway there might not have even been a computer i don't even Could know you if imagine it was. if it was like a um a, uh what are they vhs like a like a tape you no, know when you'd watch i don't, think it, don't think it was because you'd have to post that across now this yeah. was sort of like a live video you could actually wow. see but it was probably some sort of um I'm pretty sure it probably wasn't even a computer type system. It was probably some sort of a TV type hook up to the phone line or something. You know, there was also a lot of primitive sort of stuff around then. 
It's, I just had no idea that any of this existed. I know today, so Auctions Plus and there's a few other platforms, cattle sales and whatnot, uh, that are, you know, internet based, you know, online auction systems where you can post photos and videos, uh, of, of livestock for sale. And some of them even have like a kind of like eBay, like you can bid, mm-hmm. um, you know, do live bids, but, 1993, I would not have thought that that was something you could do. Mm. Uh, that was definitely – it was called CALM, Computer-Aided Livestock Marketing. And, uh, yeah, that, that was a thing. Now, I don't – I can't remember enough about it really, but other than sort of being a successful sort of purchaser. But, yeah, that was um, – was, there was video, you know, footage there on a, on a TV screen thing anyway. So, yeah, I can't remember how it worked through the phone line or computers or how it actually worked. But, anyway, it did work. And cattle can be quite territorial uh, animals, and they they have a patch of country they like, and you know sometimes within a within a station, if you move them from one area to the other, they kind of want to come back to where they went from. These cattle obviously didn't necessarily have that option because if they wanted to go home, they were literally going to have to cross the country. How did you go about though settling them into Yenathara? And being yeah, like, that, welcome that, to the Gascoigne ladies. Well, they, they, there was a couple of paddocks here that you could contain them in. Um, yeah, just smaller paddocks, you know, to settle them down. And, um, they, you know, like change over their ear tags and do earmarks and brands, etc., cetera. And, and just keep, keep them in there for a while and let, you know, until they settle down a bit and, and then gradually sort of, um, yeah, bring them out. And, um, yeah, but a, a few did sort of roam around a bit. Yeah, I'd go go to sort of other places a few times and pick up, you know, a few here and a few there. But, <laughs> yeah, you get that anyway. So, no, there was no – they mostly settled down there and, and they uh, once they all sort of carved there, that's their home for life. Now, by this time, so 1993, all four of your children would have been here. Is that right? Well, I'm not sure when yeah. Matilda came along. <laughs> yeah, Matilda's a 92 model. Okay, yeah, yeah, so all your kids are yeah. here. So I do want to go back just a little bit and ask you, obviously, I, I did warn you about this, but I need to know, tell me, how did you meet your wife, Genevieve, who is oh, currently yeah. refusing to do her own podcast, but <laughs> we'll break her. <laughs> yeah, no, I, was, um, I, I sort of knew her before we, you know, she's a, she's a local Carnarvon girl anyway and sort of, yeah, that, sort of knew of her anyway and that's um, – yeah, eventually we just sort of got an opportunity to sort of, uh, yeah, sort of get cosy and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happened. <laughs> it's all right. When Genevieve does, maybe, maybe this will be what inspires Genevieve to do our own episode so she can share her side of the story. Genevieve, please, please. Uh, but you, you over the next 10 or so years, or yeah, or eight years had four children, uh, two of which have already been on this podcast, another two left to go. What uh, what was it like in this time? So you had um, so Yinathara. Well, over this time, um, they all came in at different times. That you had so Mulu Downs, the original family place, and then uh, it was in the late and then in the late eighties, Mount Phillip, and the early nineties, Yinathara. Uh, you, you know, expanding um, and then raising a family at the same time. Do a war in two thousand nine. Yeah, you just mm. and this whole time you've had. Yeah, tell me about what it was like having the kids out bush and. Oh, that was pretty good. You know, eventually they became quite handy, and um, they. Uh, <laughs> you mean they, as of like last year? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like once they're all keen, and um, especially the girls on horses. You know, and we could do. You could have your own. We worked it out early days. You got to breed your own staff. You know, you just you know just wear to wear the full ready to go crew the whole time. You know, and like and and Genevieve used to be a horse fanatic, and uh, and she brought the kids up or the girls up likewise. So we always just had horses there and all the gear required and, 
And like, oh, the amount of times that we could decide we just need to, you know, shift these cattle or we need to get those cattle in or whatever. And, and, uh, and they were around, like home for school holidays or whatever. And you could you'd just plan around it and way you went, you know, you'd, you'd be in the aeroplane and Digby would be on a bike. He wouldn't ride a horse. And then the girls would be on horseback and mum would be in the ute and it, it just had a crew and it just, it, it just happened. It was just so easy. Now the girls got a, and as they got a bit older, there, there used to be a few bloody turkeys hanging around them. So there was always <laughs> a, there's a, there's a couple of, couple of extras, buddy, yeah, on, on, on hand as well there sometimes. So, um, yeah, we always had a crew, but then, but eventually got a, it sort of, we sort of took it for granted there for a while, for ages. And then, uh, eventually they all sort of flew off and, uh, you were sort of stuck there for a bit. But, um, yeah, there was people you could always call on to sort of carry on the program. I love that. I do. I have been uh, given some insight or some insider knowledge that just before Digby came along, you you made a, a sale and a purchase. You're probably talking about the aeroplane. Um, that wasn't the first aeroplane I bought, but it was one I needed to get at the time. And um, and what did you have to sell to get the aeroplane? Oh uh, yeah, we had a we had a Holden station where. Uh, that wasn't holding, it was a Falcon actually, Falcon station wagon. And it was a bit of a bomb of a thing anyway. I'd, uh, the rough roads had sort of sorted it out and uh, corrugations. Mechanically, it was a real brilliant car, but, um, the interior, like the dash would fall down on your knees when you're driving along and it was all held up in place by cable ties and things. And anyway, I was pretty keen to get rid of it. And I had my eye on this aeroplane I wanted to buy. So yeah, I, I actually, there was a, um, good finance bloke in Carnarvon at the time at the, at the Toyota dealership and he would sort of, um, do sort of any sort of a deal. So I actually traded the car in and, um, used that the car money for a deposit on an aeroplane and, uh, I got the aeroplane in uh, Melbourne and flew it back. Did Genevieve know about this uh, yeah, before oh, yeah. the fact? She, she knew about it all right because she had to take the car in and, um, but take she the car knew into bef- the, before you did the deal. <laughs> Uh, no, not quite. It was sort of like uh, she, she she knew what to do once uh, once got the plane organised. So that that's 1987. So that's what 34 years ago. Have you made up for it yet? Oh yeah, for selling absolutely. a absolutely selling the motor car to buy a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she, she gets around pretty good motor cars now. <laughs> I do love that though. Um, I just yeah, I can just imagine the response. But was it a nice plane? At least could you fit your wife and all three children in the plane at once? Yeah, no, you'd fit them in, no worries. It was one seven two four seater, but um, you could fit them in. But you uh, generally hates flying, so you know she she only really gets in a plane under you know great reluctance. You know it's got to be got to be something really serious um, for her to get in a plane. And took Matilda into the hospital one time there, and Genevieve sort of when she was a young girl, and uh, she'd got a little um, small plastic ball stuck inside her nostril, <laughs> and that had sort of gone in too deep. To sort of get it out, and, and so and she was having a bit of trouble, sort of breathing, and uh, so anyway, we flew her into Carnarvon, and um, they were able to sort of ex- extract it with some tools in there. It's uh, that's pretty rare to get uh, Jenny in a, in a plane. Yeah, she'll she'll she'd rather walk than fly. I'm just trying to look up on my phone what episode number Matilda was. So everyone, if you've it's it's sixty something, sixty six. Matilda Robinson. So if you go back and listen to that brilliant episode with her, and then come back and remember this, that she also had a ball stuck up her nose one time. <laughs> I'm sure she's going to be like giving you a great present for Father's Day next year to say thank you for sharing that story. All your kids have turned out fairly handy. We've got Christy, uh, who's um, 
you know, coins and, and manages Kadari uh, Station with her husband and her family out there. Courtney has been uh, well known around the, um, like our listeners and followers. She hasn't been on the podcast yet, but she'd written stories back in the day for our website. Incredibly handy with dogs. Uh, spent a lot of time contract mustering and just a very, very like the dog whisperer, kind of like a, our friend Atisha up the road. They were, they were like two peas in a pod kind of traveling around for a, for a while there. The two, the two dog ladies. And then Digby is working as a helicopter pilot. And Matilda, I mean, what can't she do? But um, currently working for Nutrien. But when we recorded her episode, she was working for Tom Curtin. So tell me a little bit about the kids and, and your, uh, I suppose, the fondest memories of them, of, of the days growing up. Oh, well, you, you get too many memories to sort of single, single sort of, you know. Or just the most embarrassing ones of them. Feel free for that too. Yeah, there's, there's, too, there's too many. You can't, you can't sort of delve into sort of like isolated sort of incidents, but, um, they're, they're, they're all uh, massively sort of capable. You know, they, they grew up so, so capable, like, um, yeah, even right through back into the, in the sheep sort of era, you know, there was, there was sheep for, um, you know, twenty odd years, and then it's been cattle for the last twenty, whatever, um, five years or something, whatever. But uh, it's um, yeah, they're also handy at getting the sheep in and pushing them up, drafting and all that sort of stuff, and pushing sheep up in the shed. And, and then then later's doing the same with you know drafting cattle, you know, just helping push up and and you know drafting and yeah, they 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 sort of um, they just they, they obviously like the lifestyle, you know, they you know the environment. And, you know, and I've I've always sort of said to them, there's there's no better way, there's no better existence than than working on bloody pastoral property. You know, doing cattle in the station country, it's by, by far the best way to make a living off the land. Now I noticed then you just said working cattle, not cattle and sheep. You did at some stage transition fully, you know, away from sheep, and t- today you just run cattle. What? Why? Why did you do that? Uh, well, just the economics of running sheep were sort of like terrible, and by, and our and our cattle herd had sort of started to build up. We had a little bit of an overlap sort of there because the cattle started after the restocking was allowed. That started ninety three onwards, but we still carried sheep through until ninety nine when the last shearing was done at Mount Phillip, and the last shearing was done. Uh, there was twenty seven thousand sheep got shorn there and and dispatched, and they were just shorn and directly put on trucks, and they all went. And um, the whole lot, and that was the end of it, end of the sheep sort of era. But um, by then, the cattle numbers had sort of come up high enough to sort of, you know, to be a standalone operation with the cattle. So, yeah, we just ran with the cattle from sort of 93 onwards. And, um, yeah, we ended up with, a, you know, around about 4,000, you know, 4,200 breeders or something there at Unithera Mount Phillip. And so, in, so 1999, you shear 20 well, – and a team of people. She had twenty seven thousand sheep, and then you put them on trucks to bye bye. Mm. You going somewhere else? Yeah, the ewes, ewes and lambs all went to another property further south, and uh, the weathers went to live export, and all the um, the weaners they they all went um, to lamb board. So, how many trucks do you need to? Fit twenty seven thousand sheep. Uh, it was actually just the one. The one truck did it all because they were going. Oh. Just, as it as it was full, it'd go. I was like, okay, so you didn't fit twenty seven thousand sheep on one truck. One truck did several yeah, trips. Yeah, okay, yeah. do you know how many trips it did? Then, like, what no, what would the equivalent sure. have been? It was just probably shifting around about I don't know eight or nine hundred at a time uh, each each slot, and then 
Yeah, it was just like one day, do a trip and then deliver those sheep and then it'll be back ready for a load in the morning and uh, just fill it again and send it again. So I think there may have been may have been some multiple truck movements there when the when the weaners went because they would have probably gone in one hit. There was about eight thousand of them, and um, and the, the weathers there was a couple of thousand, couple of thousand a bit over weathers. They they might have been multiple. I can't remember actually. There was yeah, I'd have to sort of dig up the old waybill books to sort of work out how the dates how that all happened. But was it the same truck driver that the same the same it? truck driver the same trip was a triple truck tri- triple trailer. Road train that took all the ewes away to the other station, and um, yeah, he just did all the ewes, and then after that, the uh, the weaners and the weathers went last. He must have just thought he was living in Groundhog Day, like he's loaded up sheep, taken mm. them to the station, driven back, done the same thing, and with that number, so so on a triple road train, you think you could fit around eight hundred ewes? He was about eight or nine hundred. Yeah, so he would have had to do several several yeah. trips. Like yeah. yeah, talk about Groundhog Day. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty much a day's shearing. Each day's shearing, there was a, and like it, and they'd get delivered, and then the truck would come back, the truck would be back there waiting, you know, next morning, and yeah, throughout the day, with sheep would come hot off the board onto the truck, and yeah, when the, when the load was full, off it would go. Were you were all sad to see the sheep go, and you know, that, uh, that's- not, not really. No, I was, I was glad to <laughs> glad to have gone through that era. You know, it was a good era to go through, and it was the highlight of the year, the mustering and the shearing time and all that, but. um also, you know, much as you were glad to have gone through it, you're also glad that it's over, you know, and then you can just concentrate on the cattle. And um, and it's been, you know, really successful since then. I love that. You know, it's, thir- what, more than 30 years of running sheep. No, 20 years, sorry. It would have been 20 years then. So 20 years of your life, and I'm just wondering, like, you're a little bit nostalgic, you know, a little tear glistening in your eyes. You wave off the last sheep off the property. And you're just like, it. yeah, and you're just like, nah. See you later. <laughs> no, yeah, far from it. No, you it know what? A- that you're not the only person that's told me that when I've <laughs> asked them about destocking or or transitioning out of sheep. <laughs> yeah, no, far from it. No, it was a good era to have gone through, but also it was a it's an era I'm glad's finished. Yeah, it was it was good fun, and uh, yeah, like those sheep were spread over a million acres. It was a big event getting them getting them all together. But um, yeah, glad it's glad it was over when it when it finished. I was so glad. Did you ever find one? So after the 27,000 had been trucked off over the next year or couple of months, did you ever just find one hiding out on the station somewhere? Oh, yeah. There was a, there was a few stragglers the following year. There was, I don't know, six or 700 stragglers. Oh, um, wow. That's, I thought you were going to say six or seven. <coughs> six or 700. Six or 700 stragglers. And um, we sold them locally to another station that was still running sheep on the West Gascoigne. And, um, yeah, just – and then the following year, though, there was none. There was no more after that because there was just the dogs that sort of um, thickened oh. up in numbers a bit and uh, cleaned up what was left. Wow. I'm just thinking I can imagine you'd be like, bye to the last one, and then you drive out somewhere on a water run and they're just like, ha-ha, we're back. Mm. No, oh, no. wow. No, they never, they never came back. Gosh. So we're here on a station today called Durawara, which uh, you bought, you purchased in 2009 and – I'm going to ask you because I understand the first few years were, I mean, I feel like a, a you don't do anything by halves, you know, like with when your father bought Maloo Downs, you get there and just you're straight into it. Um, and, and it's kind of same with Durawara, uh, with what, you know, happened in the next few years after that. But this wasn't your first time at Durawara when you purchased it, was it? No, I'd, I'd sort of worked here in the early eighties for a couple of years, sort of full time. And, um, oh, I actually spent, Got got married while I was sort of here and ended up living in the cottage that was that was here at the time, but since been destroyed in the flood. But um, yeah, did two years full time here and then 
uh, two years after that, uh, prior to sort of going up to Mount Phillip, just prior to that, as yes, part of sort of what I was doing at the time, just doing flying, you know, flying, mustering, flying, sort of came back for the for the different musters through the year. There's shearing muster and a, a few feral goat musters and some landmarking musters and stuff. So, yeah, was, yeah, I sort of knew the place quite well before I sort of purchased it. Was it always something you had in the back of your mind since you first worked here that if you ever got the chance you'd like to have a crack at this? I block? never ever thought the place would ever come on the market because it was owned by the, the Burt family, which was you know they sort of owned a brick house and other properties, and they um, they'd sort of had it in there. You know, it was one of their holdings since sort of day one, and it was um, no, I never ever thought it would ever property would ever come on the market but you know as it's turned out they don't have any of those properties left anymore but yeah so when it came came when the chance came I, I never ever put any thought into sort of like down, down the track you know if it comes on the market I'll get it because I just never ever thought it would come on the market but um yeah when when the when it became sort of um public that it was going to be auctioned well um yeah we sort of got ourselves ready for it and what so that was 2009 and as a welcome home or, you know, uh, housewarming party, what did Mother Nature give you? <laughs> it was that. There was no, there, was, there wasn't much of a, you know, housewarming party, that's for sure. But More like um, a housewarming hangover. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, yeah, it had been, it had been a couple of sort of pretty ordinary seasons leading up to it. 2008, 2009, there's only like, um, low rainfall years, but, um, late 2009, uh, um, Sorry, late 2010, we had this uh, massive big uh, low pressure system sort of moved into the West Gascoigne and then slowly went east. And, uh, yeah, we had, um, 320 mils of rain, like fell, fell over about a three hour period. And, um, like we, we got, there was so much water, like there was really, really heavy rain. It was just, um, it really teamed down and, uh, it, it fell in about sort of three or four lots, you know, you'd sort of, You'd get hit with one sort of wave of water and go out and measure it, and like you'd be eighty or ninety mils in a, in the rain gauge. So you'd tip that out and write that down on a bit of paper, and and then another uh, it'd start raining again, and like fifteen minutes later, you'd go after it stopped, you'd go and check it again, and there'd be like the same again. There'd be another seventy or eighty mils in the gauge, and and it was the the yard was actually sort of half flooded from the from the water and a couple of the verandas on the house at the time were a bit below the the, the water the grass level and uh, water was coming in the house in places and <clears throat> put a few blankets and things across doorways and things and you know diverted the water from coming in and anyway and finally the rain stopped you know about probably eight o'clock that night and um, by then we had about three hundred and twenty mils recorded and it had rained a little bit more after that that we couldn't measure because the rain gauge actually in the end sort of fell over on its side because it was on a bit of a sloping bit of ground and the, the you know the soil had sort of only washed away a bit and the rain gauge fell over so but anyway that was uh, that was the minor part of it that was a very welcome rain even though it was you know could have got by with a bit less the um but the, the same amount of rain and probably more so you know that went right up the river further inland and in some places in there there could have been you know it could have been 500 to 1,000 mil of rain. You know, the the river came down a couple of days later and it um, was the biggest river that's ever been recorded. You know, in Carnarvon had the highest river, river level recorded and, and here too there's never been uh, water through the house sort of here before and the water came through the house here um, about sort of three-quarters of a metre deep and did a lot of damage. Yeah, did a major, major damage. There was one 
one sort of two bedroom cottage got bloody destroyed and single men's quarters got destroyed. The, the powerhouse got destroyed and, um, the, the, um, the quarters that were further over to the back where the, they used to be the shearers quarters are quite a good set of shearers quarters that could have been used for other purposes, but, um, they all just got destroyed as well. So like building wise, it was, you know, like had a, had a major, major impact and, and, uh, yeah, a few tanks along the river, some uh, tanks, probably five, five uh, watering points along the river got sort of totally destroyed and wells, you know, caved in and the tanks washed away and, uh, windmills and solar pumps bloody knocked over. So, uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of damage, a lot of damage done. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, you, you showed me photos today of the damage and it's just, out of this world. The, the rain, when, when it started raining, was that your first rain for like the summer or the season? <laughs> yeah, it, it was actually, yeah. Like, yeah, you, you start that time of year, you can expect sort of thunderstorms and things to build up, but this was actually a pretty unique system. It was a, it was a really deep, low pressure system. You know, it, it was, it was actually deep enough to be called a cyclone, except it had no, um, Circulation in the system, but um, you know it's it's hectopascal rating. It was right there where the, the level of the cyclones are, and um, it was just a low pressure system. But it, it never never had any circulation in the system, so it wasn't ever named as a cyclone. It couldn't be, but but it just had so much rain with it, and it just moved slowly, basically up the Gascoigne River here, and um, and did a strip probably hundred k's either side, and uh, just gave everyone a big drenching. I I can just imagine that first. You know, when you get that, well, any rain, but especially that first rain for the, for the year or since, since the last rain, you know, a year ago, that, you know, little feeling of relief and you, you know, you, you just, you know, you enjoy standing in the rain, smelling it, taking it in. You're like, Oh, great. But 300 and whatever mil in three hours is mm. ridiculous. And so was it after that? So that, that initial 300 mil, that just caused minor flooding kind of on the lawn and, the veranda was it, and it wasn't the house didn't go under, and all no. the other buildings until the river came down. That's right. It was it was a couple of days later before we had the effect of the river coming down. Like <clears throat> we had that rain, but the next the next day after that heavy rain, I was able to um, hop in the aeroplane and, and go up to Gascoigne Junction, and um, and like when when we got there, like the, the old original pub that used to be there, the, the water was up to the guttering and. The river was just so wide and we thought, oh no, this is, this is, this is big. You know, we did, we, we wanted to go a bit further and have a look, but it's like, we better get back and start putting everything up. You know, just putting all the, all your gear up on sort of tables and benches. Like we said, it's definitely going to come, come up out of the banks, this, this one. How, what's but the trouble what's is everything, everything ended back in the water because everything floated and tipped back in the water. Oh. So like every TV, every, Everything, uh, like, you know, you, you have decoders for the TVs, you have vacuum cleaners, you have, you know, computers, you know, washing machines, dishwashers, everything got destroyed. Every single item of electrical equipment got destroyed. Were you able to salvage or, or put, um, you know, special items like photo albums and mm, yeah, those things like that things. up high enough that <laughs> yeah, they... Yeah, no, that, that stuff was okay. That was um, put, a, put aside up into solid sort of... Yeah, out of reach sort of areas. Can and, you put uh, things in the roof? Like, I mean, no, I didn't have, have to go to that extreme, but there was there was some solid bits of furniture and stuff there that was high enough to, um, yeah. I know, I know, I sort of laid a few um, firearms and things on on top of a couple of benches, and the water came up within about 150 mil of the level where they were laying down on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but yeah, we we're able to save a, save a bit of stuff like that, but. 
basically all, everything that was in the house, like and half the half the homestead got, or more than half, two thirds of the homestead got destroyed in the flood, uh, and has since been rebuilt as you can see what's here now. But um, yeah, no, it was it was it was a it was a major major rebuild. It was just mass massive destruction. It, it, it yeah, from my my visits here and the photos I've seen, just yeah. Uh, massive destruction and what i was absolutely blown away to learn is that in this in these circumstances with this flood your insurance was like nah like no. you know no, how it's, does that work well the insurance that's how it works you know you, you don't get insurance for water that comes up out of the river you only get um you only get sort of flood insurance from water that comes down through the roof but um yeah no so we weren't eligible all those all those buildings where you just got cleaned up with machinery. We just had front end loaders and trucks and things and, uh, just, yeah, just cleaned the sites. Basically just cleaned all the sites and you don't even, you can't even recognize where they were now, all those buildings. They just all got cleaned up and, and carted away. So if, if the 300 mil had been more and, and the flooding, you know, if it had all fallen from the sky and I don't know, let's say you had a brick wall around you, like a brick fence around your house and kind of had trapped in some water and you, you, you flooded it that way, you would have been covered because that water came from the sky. But because the river flooded and it was stuff coming from downstream, you're not covered. I mean, from upstream. Yes. Yes. No, that what the other, it's not only the water from the river, it's all the, all the debris that comes floating along with it, you know, like, um, there's, there's logs, there's just logs and trees and, and like drums and gas bottles and things just floating past. There must be a lot of stuff floating around out in the ocean out there. Tanks, you know, tanks that we used to have here just gone and rolls of poly pipe and stuff. Everything floats. Stuff in the workshop like you know, air compressors and drums, oil pumps, you know, 200 litre drums of oil with pumps in them. You know, they, everything floats. Everything just goes and you don't know it's gone until you go looking for it. And, uh, there must be, Coils of poly pipe floating around out there in the ocean somewhere. I suppose it's a good little thing for birds to land on, you know, <laughs> give themselves a rest, give their wings a rest. But, but there's, there's obviously got to be tanks out there. There's coils of poly pipe. There's, there's air compressors, you know, they just tip upside down and float away. And yeah, all that stuff just went. Everything. And you were responsible for replacing, like for footing the bill for everything. Yeah, there was a, there's a lot of it. A, a lot of it had to get replaced, of course. But there was also there's a, there's a lot of generous people out there. You know, there's a we had a lot of people sort of donating stuff to us. You know, like yeah, Quabba Station gave us a motorbike, and um, you and you and Station gave us. You know, they just booked up a new drum pump because I'd, I'd done a radio um, interview, I think, on the Country Hour or the Rural Report or something at one stage, and spoke about some of those sort of things that went floating and. And, uh, they must have heard about it. And, uh, out on the mail truck next week turns up a brand new, um, oil drum pump. So, you know, just, just a lot, there's a lot of generous people out there that sort of pitched in and sort of, yeah, gave a, gave a bit of sort of, um, replaced a bit of, they lost equipment. That's amazing. Mm. That is, you gotta love people in the bush. Mm. And then, so you think you're just trying to get through that flood. So that's 2010. And then we all know what happens in 2011. Yeah, well, yeah. Just to finish on the flood a little bit more, that um, it was was ages before. Like you, we knew we weren't. Once we realised we weren't going to get insurance on the the house rebuild because it really was a matter of like if you could have, you would have just put a bulldozer through it and started again. But once we realised that wasn't um, going to happen, the the remaining sort of third of the house that wasn't as badly damaged as the the, the 
the two-thirds closest to the river that was more badly affected, we actually had to start uh, repairing it, like and patch up patch up all the walls. You know, and we did a lot of cement rendering on the walls and put formwork there, and just patched it all up and fixed the fixed the floors up and put up put all new cement, busted all the verandas up because all the verandas got all sort of um, lifted in places and undermined. So we had to we broke up all the veranda and carted that away, and then had cement trucks come out here and put all new concrete verandas around. Them you know, about a third of the house. And, uh, yeah, just made that part livable. So we, cause we're in a tent up until April. We're living in a tent on the lawn up until April and, uh, they were starting to get a bit cool. And so, um, we got busy on patching up the old part of the house and repaired it good enough to sort of like resurrect three bedrooms. So we had three bedrooms and the dining room and, uh, office and a, and a kitchen that was still functional. And, uh, yeah, we were able to sort of exist there and we just left the rest of it. We cleaned up the rest of it and, um, but we didn't do anything, didn't do any rebuilding straight away. You know, it was, it was no point in doing it unless you could afford to do it sort of properly. And that wasn't sort of possible at the time. So we just sort of sat on the, the, the damage bill, just sat, the damage section of the house just sat here sort of untouched for oh, a good sort of six or seven years, really. And then, um, just had, it just had to wait until you, you're in a position to do something about it and, and to do it properly. So, yeah, uh, it's one thing to uh, be able to afford to fix that, like there's a lot of damage, and as if that wasn't going to be a struggle in or, or a challenge in regular circumstances, then – so that was 2010. 2000, oh, so, so the flood was – when you say April, that you were in a tent until about April, was that April 2010 or 2011? 2011. Okay, so yeah. you, you just uh, – so a few months after the flood and you're like, all right, we're just going to have to wait and see in, in normal – circumstances, you know, when we can afford to fix this, but then you get another um, uh, surprise just mm. a few months later in June. Yeah, lovely, lovely surprise with not only Julia Gillard and Joe Ludwig, you know, just put a – stop the bloody uh, shipping of cattle over to Indonesia, put a ban on sort of exporting cattle. Yeah, and um, – yeah, that, that was, that was pretty tough going. That, um, there was a couple of years of pain there. The, um, Indonesian government got their back up and rightly so. Who could blame them? Um, cutting off their food supply like that was the most arrogant bloody thing any government's ever done. But, um, yeah, there was a, that caused a couple of years of pain for us and, and many others. Um, yeah, there was the Indonesian government, uh, the, um, instigated a quota system where you could, um, and the price was way lower, but it was, Restricting the numbers you could send once the trade did restart, and uh, like you may have had three or four hundred cattle that you wanted to um, send, but you know the stock agents trying to trying to sort of assist everyone, they had to sort of share it around a little bit. So out of your potential three hundred, you you might get one hundred away or one hundred and fifty maybe, and then uh, try your luck sort of in the in the next quarter when the quota allocation sort of came through. Yeah, so that that was a pretty painful period for a couple of years, and the income. Income had sort of dried right up, and and that brought pressure to bear later on. You know, a couple of years down the track, at a mid sort of 2013, the ANZ Bank started getting bloody toey with everyone, and and uh, sort of yeah, they got pretty pretty grumpy with us, and sort of uh, gave us a, us a bit of an ultimatum that you know, if you, you know, you got three properties, you know, you, you 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 sell them or we'll sell them, sort of thing. So anyhow, we managed to sell Unithera and Mount Phillip off, get. Get that sold, and uh, yeah, and luckily we were able to, um, yeah, uh, go to Royal Bank, and then we sort of um, able to sort of hang on to Durawarra. But uh, yeah, unfortunately we couldn't sort of keep it all intact. 
No, and, that, and that's something that we'll certainly be doing an episode on um, the whole, I don't know, ANZ, whatever you want to call it, debacle, because you, as, as, as we spoke last night, you guys certainly weren't the only people to be, I mean, really, what else can you say of it? Let's just say it bluntly, screwed over. Mm. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll do an episode to really uh, sh- uh, kind of tell that story because it's something that even though it happened less than a decade ago and there was, you know, back there was a few little farming examples on 60 Minutes and a little bit of media coverage back then, but it is something I think it's important that we keep um, – not at the forefront of everyone's mind, but make sure people don't forget about it because you think, oh, we're at the mercy of the weather or the government or, you know, like is the trade, you know, what's going to happen or, uh, you know, some people think, you know, we're all going to get shut down by animal activists or whatever. But to, to just keep – you remember that there's another player in there that can really – uh, have a big impact. It'd be interesting to see if someone could sort of really uh, delve into the uh, the uh, the background of all that sort of ANZ landmark sort of take over, and then the and then the sort of uh, squeezing everyone to repay their loans um, because ANZ hadn't long sort of taken over that rural sort of loan book off off landmark, and um, they had a clear intention to um, to get rid of it, you know, close it in, and cl- call everyone's loans in, and, and just sort of. Don't have it. Just don't have that um, landmark rural loan book there. So I think someone, it's a pity someone couldn't have gotten to the bottom of all that because I think it was a, they bought that loan book for a pretty low price and I think they've made a big profit out of that. Yeah. I can't, I actually can't wait to, to really hook into this and make an episode about it because it's not just the, I mean, well, there's, there's so many aspects to it, but not only is it just a disgusting way to treat people and a shit way to run business, uh, excuse my French. But for a lot of the people that were, um, well, you know, not displaced, but, you know, kind of forced to sell, uh, by, by ANZ's actions is so many long-term experienced custodians of the land were no longer on those properties, mm. you know? So it's not just a, 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 you know, there's, there's obviously many, yeah, many aspects to this, but in effect, you're also removing a really valuable resource from the community and from the land. So yeah, I, I've, um, not look forward, but in a way, look forward to really to being able to share that story with everyone. So you, you, I mean, you don't do things easy, do you? Well, not not that it's your choice, but you haven't had the. Well, I was about to say you haven't had the easiest run, but I know that any person in agriculture, if you say that to them, they'll be like, "Well, that's all of us in our." So I just, as soon as I said that, I knew that you're like, "Oh, that's no different to anyone else." But um, it's been a, a bloody interesting ride so far. Yeah, well, there was a little bit. There's a you know, we had a lot of rain through 2011 as well. You know, that was one good thing. That was the only good thing about 2011. But um, but that created another issue in itself. Like in the the summer of 11, 12, we had massive bushfires through here. This whole West Gascoigne region was basically got burnt, and uh, that that fire that that lasted for a couple of months. It took a couple of months before it was put out, and uh, like it. There was so many electrical strikes around, and there was so much dry growth through the countryside that the, every time the lightning hit somewhere, that just another fire would start there. And first one started to the northeast, and then there was one further north, and then there was some to the south, and then some further west. And there was just fires just starting up everywhere. And uh, we were busy all that summer, just you know, attacking you know individual fires. You know, just flying, flying around. You know, you'd be in the plane from first light to last light, and you're guiding machinery around and. Yeah, just tracking around the edge of fires and trying to sort of save as much pasture as possible. And um, 
we're a bit lucky. We probably lost about 60%, got probably about 60% burnt here, but we saved about 40%. But uh, some of the places further north of us, um, they, they lost a lot more than us. And, um, yeah, it'd be a gruesome situation they've been if you got fully burned out, but you've just got stock there still and there's, there's just nothing left for them. You'd have to and nowhere them. to sell them. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, uh, that was, that created a bit of a drama that we could have done without. But anyway, you, you just roll with the flow sort of thing. Yeah, I suppose that's that's kind of yeah your entire entire time in the pastoral industry. You've, challenges come up, and you've found a way around it, and then gotten to a happy place. And another challenge comes up, and I, I'm sure many people can say mm. the same. Now, before I let you go, because um, I know you're really excited, I'm going to take a nice picture of you and your wife after this. <laughs> Nobody could see that, but he did roll his eyes. Uh, I'll, I'll very quickly ask you. I understand you were a uh, shy counsellor. Is that the right term? For twenty six years, or you're on the shire, or you're yeah, on the council. But, uh, yeah, I was. I was on. I was on the local uh, Upper Gascoigne um, council. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. When when we used to uh, own Unitherm Mount Phillip. Yeah, uh, yeah. I sort of went on in. Uh, I think eighty nine. I got elected onto the shire there, and um, I was. I just stayed there until I think two thousand and. Oh, 2015, I think it was. Yeah, 2015, I, uh, my term expired. Um, I was no longer a resident in the Upper Gascoigne then because Durawar was located in the Carnarvonshire. So, yeah, I wasn't eligible to sort of stay on the council. So, uh, yeah, I had, to, I had to sort of jump off. So, yeah, it was a bit of a shame. I, I sort of really enjoyed my time on the, on the council. It was, was really good being involved in the sort of, uh, you know, in the council sort of decision making processes and, yeah. Well, if you yeah. Want, yeah, if you want something done, well, they say if you want something done, ask a busy person. But as if you weren't busy enough raising a family, developing properties, you know, just living life, um, I, I just was wondering if you could tell me a few of your key achievements that you're that you when you look back on that you're proud of while while you're involved. Oh, look, yeah, there's too many, there's too many. You know, it's, I think like, there was a bridge. Did you, you got a bridge made, didn't you? Oh, uh, you know, it was one of the issues that when I was on um, the later part of my sort of years on council was, you know, just continually tried to sort of push for getting a bridge, a bridge sort of built over the over the river at Gascoigne Junction. It, it was always a drama there because the, the town split in half when the river runs and it's only a small settlement there, but um, the, the people that lived on the north side of the river used to have to get in a boat and go backwards and forwards across the river to uh, get supplies and, and, uh, yeah, we were just pushing, pushing all the time to work out a way how we could get some funding to get a bridge made. And, uh, and that happened sort of like eventually, but it happened um, a couple of years after I got off the Shire. But, um, yeah, we, it was just one of those, it was just one of those issues that just constantly sort of kept reminding everyone that we needed to, uh, you know, keep, keep working towards getting this, this done, you know, let this get a bridge so, so people don't have to get in a boat and get across the river. Now, is it also true that you, uh, one of your campaign strategies was to promise to build a pub? No, you but promised- once, once the, the flood destroyed the original pub. Oh, you, and, and you promised to rebuild it? No, not, not no. sort of so much me promised to rebuild it, but we, we pushed to sort of, um, get, get a sort of like a replacement done. You know, with some with some financial help from state government, and luckily at the time Brendan Grills was still in Parliament, and uh, the royalties for regions sort of money funding was available, and he he assisted greatly in that. If it wasn't for him, it wouldn't have happened. And um, he came and had a look, and uh, I I was one of the councillors that and the Shire president that we met with him, and we um, showed him the the wrecked pub, and uh, and we sort of threw a bit of a threw a bit of a plan at him, sort of like, you know, where, where would you, 
there was a you know some higher ground there that was out of the flood area, and um, yeah, with his sort of work in the background, it, it sort of it came off. Got a, there's a really brilliant bloody facility there now at Gascoigne Junction. You know, a proper proper roadhouse shop sort of roadhouse with a uh, with a tavern attached to the side of it and a caravan park and uh that's just a really brilliant setup like it's it's as good as anything anywhere you know like it's probably better than most other places it is i did go there this year for afl grand final and that was the second time i've been there and it is a it's a flash yeah flash setup flash venue yeah no it's it's an awesome bloody setup yeah for sure no if it's yeah it's all thanks to brendan grills really so what I mean, so as I've just said, you've achieved so much uh, in your time and, you know, whether that be on – whether being, uh, whether that's being involved with the council or on, I know you've been on various committees and, and groups like that within the industry and the community, uh, you've developed your properties, you've raised a family, uh, landed a smoking hot wife. <laughs> She's going to die when she hears this, but she is. What's next? Oh, well, eventually, you know, I'll, I'll fail the time doesn't stop for anyone, does it? So, yeah, it, it won't be long before I'll have to um, – I've, I've got a son who's probably um, wishing I'd get out of the way, but uh, I like what I'm doing too much still. So, yeah, but eventually I will have to do that, get out of the way and, and give him a bit of a crack at it. But, yeah, so that'll be a – yeah, I think down the track there'll probably be, a you know, an ag block somewhere that we'll be involved in and um, just – you know, take you know, take a back step sort of thing, and sort of um, let the next generation have a crack at things. So, so you, yeah, you've spent almost your entire life in the Gascoigne. Do you think you'll stay here, or will you have to? When you say an ag block, I'm guessing that's further south. I think it'd be further south, but you'd keep it. You know, you'd sort of float backwards and forwards a bit, and uh, be involved still. And uh, yeah, it's too it's too nice a lifestyle. This it's just it's hard hard to leave. I tell you, it'd be it's just incredible lifestyle as. There's fair income. There's no better way to make a living off the land than doing, you know, cattle in the station country. And, of course, there's also just so many memories that have been made in this region. And thank you so much for sharing a handful of them with us on this episode. To finish up, I'd like to ask you, looking back on on your story and all your experiences so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you have learnt? Um. Gee, where's you got me on the spot here? This one, but oh, um, I, I didn't give you any pre-warning twenty-four uh, hours ago, did I? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I suppose you've just got to treat the country with a fair bit of respect, you know. Like, um, yeah, I've, we've we've always been pretty proactive in sort of like looking for more water points, you know, and keep keep the cattle well dispersed, um, you know. Don't don't let them sort of concentrate too much, you know, and make make use of the, the you know, full use of all the property. Don't don't sort of um, you know, don't let them congregate too much and sort of, you know, make certain areas a bit tired. So, no, I think that's probably probably it, you know. Like, you can tend to sort of um, crank things up a bit at times, you know, when things are nice and uh, rosy and there's plenty of feed and, and good prices. You think, oh, yeah, we should be going a bit harder, but invariably that, you know, the, the following year will sort of, you know, bring you back to reality. 